We are privileged this morning to have Dr. Kevin Smith with us. He'll be coming to preach God's Word in just a moment. He and his wife Pat are with us today. We're thankful for them to be uh, able to come down here to Southern Maryland, St. Mary's County, to be with us this morning. Uh, Brother Kevin is presently the Executive Director of the Baptist Convention of Maryland and Delaware. He was called to that role sometime last year. We are delighted here in our state convention to have him in leading uh, us as 550-some, 600 churches throughout the states of Maryland and Delaware, just helping us partner together, work together for the sake of the gospel here in the mid-Atlantic region of these United States. And we are thrilled that he is there leading us along the way. He previously was a pastor at Highview Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. It is pronounced Louisville, right? And uh, he was also a, a professor at Southern Seminary, which I know many of us have Several of us have some ties to. We've got a couple of students there, one at Boyce College, a couple at Boyce College, and uh, it's, it's encouraged. We've been encouraged through his ministry there. But at this time, Brother Kevin, would you come and bring God's word to us and uh, share with us what the Lord would lead you to, Brother? It's, it's a privilege to have you with us today. I'll greet you this morning in the name of Christ, our Lord, who's the head of the church, and counted a joy to be with you. Uh, My wife, Pat, and I, we enjoyed riding down from Annapolis this this morning. Um, There are not a lot of nice places in Maryland, and after you spend your adult life in Tennessee and Kentucky, after having grown up in Prince George's County, it is just nice to get back to the Chesapeake Bay and everything that runs off of the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, I certainly love the middle of the country, but I miss the bay and I miss the ocean and life is sweet again. (laughs) Certainly thank the Lord for your pastor, his kind invitation, and what a joy to be with you. I certainly do want to thank you for your participation in the mission that we do as Merlin Delaware Baptists. Uh, Make sure you realize that you, uh, through our cooperative program efforts together, you support over 4,000 missionaries around the world, uh, many in unknown places that we can't publicly speak of, especially in the 1040 window, that are sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with unreached people groups and sharing the gospel with people who have never heard the name of the Lord before. Uh, You support things like Baptist Global Relief, where we're able to help uh, refugees and people fleeing persecution, and we're able to meet some of these international needs that you see on the news. You support the North American Mission Board, which focuses on church planning in North America, particularly outside of the South, Uh, one of those places certainly being the Mid-Atlantic. And so through things like the Annie Armstrong Easter offering and the cooperative program, We support the planning of churches outside of the South, and I thank you for that. You support six of the largest seminaries in the world. More pastors in America are trained in Southern Baptist seminaries than any other denomination, and so thank you for your support of those efforts. And then you support what we do here in Maryland, Delaware, to strengthen and plant churches. And so uh, praise God for your efforts and uh, praise God for our cooperation together. And I certainly pray that you see much, much fruit here um, in your county and in your area. As we were riding down, I was just praying and talking to my wife. I said, one thing's for sure. There's activity that happens on Sunday mornings. And so our job is to meet people, be relational with people, be kind of that light and salt of Matthew chapter 5 and make people understand that many of the angst and the holes and the anxieties that they have in life can be filled only by a reconciled relationship with God through his son Jesus Christ or what we kind of summarize in a phrase called redeeming grace. (laughs) And so uh, let me invite you to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus, one of the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch or the law where God's relationship with his people is established. And we're actually going to look at the formal establishment point 
in Exodus 20, many of you would know that as the Ten Commandments or think of it as the Ten Commandments, and the Jews would call it the Ten Words. And um, there it is, Exodus 20, cool graphic, especially for somebody who likes water. Yeah. <clears throat> Let me read several verses, and then we will look at the text. Um, preaching this in the context of this year, preaching through the Baptist faith and message, which is the confession of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I'm preaching, and I've been in the first two articles, which uh, the first article is on Scripture, and the second article is on God. And matter of fact, I want to read an excerpt from there first, because uh, I like to read the Scripture secondly, because I like to read the greatest authority secondly. Uh, our confessions, any confession throughout the history of Christianity, is just a summary of what faithful Christians have sought to uh, summarize biblical teaching. So let me read from the confession and then read from the authoritative word of God from which we prayerfully get the truths of our confessions. So listen to this first article on the scripture. The Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction it has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us, and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. And then the second article, article number two, is on God, and it has an introduction, and then three subpoints just focus on God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I just want to read from the introduction of article two on God. There is one and only one living and true God. He is an intelligent, spiritual, personal being, the creator, redeemer, preserver, and ruler of the universe. God is infinite in holiness in all other perfections. God is all-powerful and all-knowing, and his perfect knowledge extends to all things, past, present, and future, including the future decisions of his free creatures. To him we owe the highest love, reverence, and obedience. The eternal triune God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct and personal attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. Um, in your study and in your discipleship elements of the church, uh, you can go to any Lifeway and find the Baptist Faith and Message, or you just reach out to the state convention. We'll gladly send you a couple of hundred of them um, because any good Baptist geek either has it on his phone or has a little personal copy that he keeps in his Bible. If you're really a Baptist geek, you have a personal copy that you keep on your person. <laughs> I went through this great patriotic phase in college where I used to walk around with the Constitution in my pocket because I just thought American history wasn't being taught and I used to just tell pe people in college, man, you're a sorry American. You don't even know the outline of the Constitution. <laughs> so if you're nerdy, you keep those documents on you. Um, now let us go to the authoritative word of God, Exodus chapter 20, which provides a wonderful intersection between those first two articles, the word of God, the revelation of God, and the character of God. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. 
Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generations of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Looking back to my childhood in the church, memorization of certain Christian truths and Christian doctrines and Christian stuff that you should know was very helpful. But memorization of scripture is superior to the memorization of Christian stuff. And one of the reasons I think that is because like right here in these first six verses of Exodus 20, there's a lot more than you would learn from the typical kind of Sunday school upbringing I had as a child. Because there's a lot more in these verses than thou shalt have no other gods before me, thou shalt not make graven images. A lot of the memorization that children my era kind of experience was just learning these 10 kind of phrases which were the 10 commandments and if you learn thou shalt have no other gods before me thou shalt not make graven images there's a lot in these verses about the character of God and his relationship to his people that you miss so memorizing Christian doctrine or summaries of Christian doctrine and memorizing Christian phraseology those kind of things are helpful but memorizing scripture is superior here in Exodus 20 is God's first formal laid out revelation of himself to those who will be his chosen people. One of the clearest pictures that I think helps is on Mount Sinai, God marries Israel summarized by the phrase in scripture, I shall be your God and you shall be my people. You see the equivalence there between like sometimes now and the present when we say, do you take this woman to be your wedded wife? Do you take this man to be your wedded husband? I shall be your husband and you shall be my wife. God says to Israel, I shall be your God and you shall be my people. And there's much implied, as our brother prayed, there's much implied in there about fidelity and faithfulness and commitment. In these six verses, as we talk about the character of God revealed to his people at the beginning, please note in verse 3, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And in verse 5, the Lord thy God is a jealous God. Please note that God is not like an insurance salesman. He lays out the raw cut of the relationship at the beginning. He doesn't have the raw cut in the fine print. And that's just a stereotype, but every insurance agent I've kind of dealt with, they've always like had the big stuff, but the real stuff was in the fine print. Like we're gonna receive your premiums, but in the fine print, here's 20 situations where we ain't paying your claim. <laughs> no, God lays it out at first. Hello, I'm a jealous God. Woo, that's kind of like a strong first impression. And for people that kind of make this hyper distinction between God in the Old Testament and God in the New Testament, which is a heretical Marcion false hyper distinction, Jesus says, before you come after me, count the calls. So we're playing just as I am. The invitation is gone. People are flowing down the aisles. Jesus says, wait, before you come, count the cost. God's revelation is loaded from the front at the top with the commitment that he requires. Sometimes our evangelism, sometimes our outreach, sometimes our 
follow-up, sometimes our fruit of people being in our assembly one year after we, quote, baptize them, sometimes those things have been affected by the way that we've been kind of caught up in the consumerism and the marketing of America, and sometimes we kind of soft-sell God. You know, there's a whole church growth ethos that says, you know, don't really say anything about the commitment to Christ. Just kind of do stuff to kind of get people in. And at some point later, we'll get to the real root teachings of Christianity. But that some point later never comes. And so some of the prominent leaders of the church growth movement of the 80s and the 90s will have written and have done interviews now that said, you know what, we created a big crowd, but we sure didn't really create disciples of Jesus Christ. Well-known people have said, yeah, that methodology was not good. God, at the beginning of his relationship with Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ, at the beginning of his relationship with many of the people in the crowds, will both say, the Father and the Son Hey, let me make sure you understand what I am calling you to. There's no bait and switch here. There's no soft sell here. You say, man, that sounds harsh. It's rooted in relationship. See, another benefit, another shortcoming of just kind of memorizing of that phraseology, if you just memorize the Ten Commandments, you say, say the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other God before me. Well, to start right there in verse 3, you overlook and, you, and your memorization doesn't teach you the relationship element in verse 1 and 2. For the Lord and God spake these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I'm not just like saying these words just out of the twilight zone. These words are based upon the relationship that we have. These words are based upon the deliverance that I've already worked in your life. These words are based upon the fact that you are who you are right now because of my mighty work on your behalf. Now let me reveal myself to you. And so mere memorization doesn't always get the relational elements and the uh, uh, descriptive elements that are involved in Scripture. And most of the Bible is narrative. You know, believe it or not, you know, American Christianity, American Bible-believing, faithful Christianity is real strong in the epistles and didactic teaching, but most of the scripture is narrative and narrative that reveals the character and the ways of God. See, that's a hard thing to say. No gods before me, I'm a jealous God. What he is saying is hard is rooted in the relationship that he has with these people. So God's jealousy... Think of, that in a, think of that in its own character. You know how you think of God's power in its, own, in, in its own category? Think of God's jealousy in its own category. God is holy. So everything about God is holy. So his love is holy love. His power is holy power. His jealousy is holy jealousy. So when we say, when he says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, I mean, don't, don't, don't think about that, that, that nutcase you dated in high school. God's jealousy is, is in its own category. Don't, don't, don't think about that person that had no right to think you belong to them, but they thought you belong to me. I own you. Don't, don't, don't think about that nutcase. I don't know how old some of y'all are. Remember that movie Fatal Attraction? Don't, don't, don't think about the bunny. Don't think about the rabbit boiling in the pot. Oh. God's jealousy is a righteous expectation of obligation from his people based upon his relationship to his people. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. 
Thus, his expectation of the exaltation of his son and the commitment of his people to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is based upon the relationship. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. In the New Testament, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the gift of everlasting life ought to provoke God's people to want to serve him, as Jesus says, with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is like under that, love your neighbor as yourself. So the Bible says, I'm the Lord your God, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Based upon that, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Ideological and practical pluralism have always been realities that the faithful followers of the true and the living God have had to navigate. You know, it's laughable sometimes. People say, oh, man, I got to figure out how to be a faithful Christian because we in just such a different changing culture. And, and I don't know if Christians have ever had the challenges that we've had. I, I don't know if you took a history class. I mean, America is challenging and impressive, but it's not more impressive than Egypt. It's not more impressive than Babylon. American is freaky and perverted, but it's not more freaky and perverted than Rome, ancient Rome. Surely not more perverted than the land of Canaan. Oh, there's so many just false religions and new age spirituality and all that. Surely not more diverse than Canaan. So God, you know, God, God has always prepared his people. You're going to have to be committed to the true and living God in the midst of the pretenders and the contenders. That's always been a part of being faithful to the true and the living God who has called you and delivered you from the darkness and brought you into the marvelous light. That's nothing new. Oh, sounds like Solomon. Ain't nothing new under the sun. Stuff is cool and stuff is impressive, but the Bible reader is never really that impressed with stuff because it's not new to the Bible reader. The world is blown away. Ooh, ah, ooh, ah. The Bible reader is not blown away. Ah, oh, this political leader or this cultural leader, their soul, whatever. You study the kings of Israel, you're not blown away by different leaders. Oh, this guy is sneaky, but he's devilish. So is Jeroboam. Oh, this guy is young, but he's strong. So was Josiah. Oh, this guy is a beast. He's a man. He's a godly leader. So was David. Oh, but this guy disappointed me. So did David. Bible readers aren't impressed and thrown off and shocked by everything that comes around the corner because we have the wisdom and the insight of the Holy Spirit inspiring that old man named Solomon who had been burned by the decisions of his life to say, you know what, there ain't really nothing new under the sun. It's all been done before. So God says, in the midst of preparing his people to go into the land of Canaan, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. God wouldn't give them that warning if they weren't false gods out there pretending to be God. If they weren't idols that people propped up contending to be God. There's so much idolatry in the ancient world that the prophets like Isaiah, they mocked the idols. Ha ha, y'all are stupid. Y'all worship gods that have eyes and can't see anything, hands and can't handle anything, ears and can't hear anything, feet and can't walk nowhere. I mean, how much ancient marijuana did the Philistines smoke? Their God was in the temple with the Ark of the Covenant, fell down. They came in and picked their God up. I mean, how high do you have to be to worship a God you got to pick up? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That hasn't changed. That dynamic of being faithful to the true and the living God in the midst of false gods, that hasn't changed. 
That dynamic of being faithful to the true and the living God. I asked your pastor where he was in his preaching. He said y'all were in Daniel. That dynamic of being faithful to the true and the living God when president or congressman or governor Nebuchadnezzar tells you to worship them, that dynamic hasn't changed. That dynamic hasn't changed. Nebuchadnezzar might be a politician. Nebuchadnezzar might be a cultural icon. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself nor serve them. So many of you are familiar with Paul in Romans chapter 1 saying that the church in Rome was living in an environment where people were prone to worship the created things rather than the creator who created those things. But that's, that's, that's not new. Here in the first words, the 10 words of Exodus 20 on Mount Sinai, God says, now make sure you don't make any image of anything in heaven or on the earth or underneath the earth. Make sure you don't make images of anything that I made and worship that as God because that is something that I made and so that the praise for that thing which is made ought to be given to the one that made it, not to the thing. Not to the thing. The Bible says that God is to be worshiped alone. God alone is to be worshiped, not the things that God made. You say, well, those faithful to God should understand that. Well, you should read through the Old Testament. You should look at Ezekiel and other places and just see the kind of things that were happening in the temple of the Lord sometimes. <laughs> when people forget the character of God, remember we read in the Baptist faith and message that said God is all-knowing. When people forget the character of God, they forget the way God operates. God is all-knowing. God is omnipresent, meaning he's in all time, all places at all times in all of his fullness. Woohoo! That's some mind-blowing stuff right there. You want to distinguish yourself from a Mormon, a Jehovah Witness, a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Confucianist? Just say, well, let's just talk about the character of God. That'll set the discussion off all right, right, right there. So there were times when Israel and Judah, God's supposed people, they would forget about the all-knowing character of God. And so on the outside of the temple and outside of their places of worship, they'd be the regular symbols of worshiping the true and the living God. And on the inside, sometimes they would have pictures of birds and creatures and trees and other created objects. And Ezekiel and other prophets say they would be up in there worshiping those things thinking that they are behind the walls and the people can't see them and God can't see them. Nothing unfaithful, nothing syncretistic, nothing inclusivistic is new and unique to us. There's always been the temptation to not be faithful to the living God, the true and the only God. There's always been that temptation. And God's people have always had to be reminded. That's why we have the prophets all through the Old Testament. God's people have always had to be reminded. Hey, stay faithful to the true and the living God. There is no God but him. That's a constant plea that always has to be made with God's people. What's the real root of it? It's rooted in the character of God. Verse 5, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. God expects the loyalty of his people. God expects the commitment of his people. Being changed by the Lord God is not just an add-on to one's life. That's why right here, God lays out the expectations of a relationship with him. That's why in the Gospels, Jesus Christ lays out the expectations of a relationship with him. For example, in Luke 14, 26, for example, 25. And there went great multitudes with them, and he turned and said unto them, well, if there's great multitudes with Jesus, the church growth movement to say, well, make sure you say something right now to hook them in. There's great multitudes with Jesus, and Jesus says, if any man come to me 
And hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yea, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Dang, that's your church growth marketing strategy in the midst of a great multitude of people? And great multitudes went with him. He turned and said, if you're going to come after me, you have to love me more than you love all the people in your family. And then you need to look in the mirror and love me more than you love yourself. Woo! He sure enough could not have worked for Amway. God lays out the commitment up front. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus lays out the commitment of what it is to follow him. And the commitment that Jesus calls for is a perfect parallel to the commitment that the Lord called for in the first revelation of himself when he establishes his relationship, his covenant relationship with the promised people of Israel. To chosen, excuse me, the chosen people of Israel. Look at verse five some more. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So one's fidelity or infidelity towards God has consequences. I was um, I was engaging a young man I know. I was engaging him in a place I don't really like to engage people. Uh, but he tweeted, um, and I hate the phrase, people get to what they want to get to, or people do what they want to do. And I love this young man, and I don't usually engage people on Twitter, but a lot of his friends were like, yeah, 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 yeah. And it was, it was a lot of male friends. And it was the context of relationships and making commitments to young ladies. And so I just tweeted back, if you hate that phrase, it doesn't make it not true. It just means that you hate it. And he's in his early 20s, just recently a college grad. And I said, the weight of adulthood is realizing that choices have consequences. That's what a lot of people are kind of get away from in our culture nowadays. I want consequence-free choices. Baloney, it doesn't exist. And so then I hashtagged, Yes to this, no to that. So the young lady is right. Your yes to I want to doggedly be into my career right now and I ain't focusing on nothing but making money and getting promoted is a no to I don't want to marry you and commit to you right now. So whether you like the phrase or not, the young lady's right. People do what they want to do. There's consequences to one's relationship to the true and living God, period. And there's consequences to one's relationship to the true and living God, especially if you've been changed by him, you profess to be changed by him, you profess to have a verse two type of relationship with him where he has delivered you. There's big time consequences. He says in the fifth verse, I will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generations of them that hate me. That's not God making children pay for their parents' sins. That's kind of this thing of environment and context where children learn their parents' sins. Before I was a pastor, I was a chaplain in the Hamilton County Jail. 
My wife's from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Hamlin County is Chattanooga, Tennessee. Chattanooga, Tennessee is in Hamlin County. Um, and one of the most depressing things about being in the jail was occasionally, not all the time, but enough times for me to notice, occasionally the grandson was on the second floor and the father was on the fourth floor and the grandfather was on the sixth floor. Sometimes when I'm doing premarital counseling and we're trying to unpack the garbage so both people can walk into the relationship authentic and pure before the Lord and open with one another and we're unpacking people's past, I mean, who taught you how to, like, drink like that? My father. Who taught you how to fornicate like that? Some relative. Who taught you how to run the numbers? Some relative. So, so, so visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation is not God punishing younger people for the sins of their older relatives. It's the fact that, old, that younger people pick up the sins of their older relatives because whether people do it intentionally or whether people do it unintentionally, we are all disciple makers. It's just what kind of disciples are we making? A few years ago, Church uh, Time magazine, some magazine had articles about Oprah Winfrey and talk about the church of old because she makes disciples. You wouldn't even believe that there's millions of white middle class women of a certain age where if they want to do anything significant in their life, their job, their relationship, their money, their fashion, they want to know what does Oprah think about it. That's discipleship. So the Bible says there's consequences to being faithful to God or being not faithful to God. There's consequences to acknowledging God or not acknowledging God. So, if there's consequences to a human person's relationship with God, maybe in a secular getting more and more post-Christian, getting more and more hostile towards Christians' culture, maybe we wouldn't run around like Chicken Little talking about, what's going on? What's happening? I don't understand why my country is like this. You do understand why your country is like it is. Because we are reaping what we've sown. Well, I didn't do this. I know, I know. We ain't talking about your household. We talking about the city you live in and the state you live in and the nation that you live in. I mean, women have been objectified since whenever. But it got mass marketed with the development of stuff like Playboy and Penthouse and the rise of people like Hugh Hefner. And we're just at the ultimate, not even ultimate, we're just at a high point of objectification. I mean, we've always had the haves and the have-nots. We've always had greedy people. We've always had the robin bear, baron rob, robin bears, if you read the, uh, uh, the rise of industrialization at the turn of the 20th century. We've always had greedy people who would do whatever to poor people so that they can get more and more wealth. That's not new. We just get into a maximum kind of apex of some of that stuff. There's consequences to rejecting God. There's consequences to rejecting the image of God and other human beings. There's consequences to rejecting God as creator. I mean, we're at a 20 or 30 or 40 year cycle of academia and some school training rejecting God. So what kind of country would you think we'd be living in? if there's consequences to rejecting the true and the living God. I'll visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And I'll show mercy on the thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Woo! 
There's consequences to having other gods and making idols and rejecting the true and the living God. And there's consequences to acknowledging the true and the living God and not having other gods and not having idols. He says, I'll show mercy on the thousand and then that love me and keep my commandments. One of the things we have to get away from as followers of the true and the living God through his son, Jesus Christ, is we have to reject the emotionalism of our culture. And we have to reject the emptying of words in our culture. I love God. I love God. People get off. I love God. Well, 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 he says in the sixth verse, if you love me, you keep my commandments. And then Jesus says the exact same thing in the New Testament. If you love me, keep my commandments. <laughs> Matter of fact, my late pastor, he would say, if we could confuse God, we would. Because Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I say unto you? So with the true and the living God, love equals obedience. And we've been in a culture where love equals Hallmark cards. Love equals I say I love you. Love equals sex. Love equals romance. Love, love equals a whole lot of things in our culture. But in the Bible, love of God equals obedience to God. And in a self-actualization, individualistic, don't worry, be happy, I did it my way, culture, <laughs> obedience is a bad word. God says, if you love me, you will obey me. We can't hype God up with good language. We can't hype God up with romantic interaction. We can't hype God up by singing a few songs about him on Sunday and living like we king and queen the rest of the week. We live in a culture that somewhat is informed by Invictus. Out of the night that covers me, black as a pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. And the last line of that poem says, I am the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. God's revelation says, baloney. You are not the master of your fate. I realize that every time I ride my motorcycle. I did a men's retreat this weekend and I rode my bike down there. And every time I'm on the road, I realize I'm on the road with drunk people and I'm on the road with people texting while they drive. And when I'm on my motorcycle, I never feel like I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. No, I'm like... I went down this little country road, and, and, and when you're on your motorcycle, a little baby deer freaks you out. <laughs> Mr. Captain of your soul. No one glories in tragedies, but hurricanes in Florida and the south of America and tornadoes, I'm sorry, tornadoes in Florida and hurricanes, I mean hurricanes in Florida and tornadoes out in the middle of the, all those kind of things should humble that I'm the cap master of my soul, I'm the master of my fate type thing, thinking. So God says to his people, now remember now, remember, remember verse one and two, God, God says to his people, I am God, have no other gods before me. Don't freak out about your environment. Because right here in Exodus 20, he's not speaking to the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Jebusites, the Amorites. He, he's not speaking to all those ites that worship idols. He's speaking to those he has delivered and brought up out of Egypt. He says to them, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And so it's my prayer that in Southern Maryland, 
where we are fortunate to be around great military power. We're fortunate to be near the capital of America. I say fortunate because perhaps we can have Christian witness and influence in some important areas. We're fortunate to be around financial centers in Baltimore and Dover, Delaware and places like that. Our Baptist convention is in an influential area. But from what your pastor's preaching, when you live near Nebuchadnezzar, you always have to check your loyalty. When you live in Babylon, your loyalty is always tested. You say, oh, I don't think we're living in Babylon. I think we're living in Rome. When you live in Rome, your loyalty is always tested. Because Caesar will say the same thing Nebuchadnezzar said, bow down and worship me. And Caesar is a bigger freak than Nebuchadnezzar. And so Caesar will distort God's sexuality. Caesar will distort male and female. Caesar will say, ignore that little 127 thing in Genesis about male and female. He created them. Ignore the complementarity between the sperm of the man and the egg of the woman. I know it looks like they have different functions, but that's just a social construct. Yeah, your loyalty and commitment would always be tested whether you live in Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon or Caesar's Rome. In Hollywood, in Washington, D.C., in Wall Street, try to exercise the same influence. And so I urge you to remember the words of our Lord. I am the God who has delivered you from the bondage of sin. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't make idols. Appreciate the things that I've given you and give me glory. So yesterday I stood where the Rhodes River in the where I stood where the Rhodes River dumps into the Chesapeake Bay. And I praised God. I didn't praise the Rhodes River. When my family spends Christmas in Florida, I like warm Christmas. I stand on the Keys or I stand on the Atlantic side in uh, Hollywood. And I look at that big Atlantic Ocean. I like that side because... People usually live over there. Every now and then on the Gulf side, people become shark lunch. So I go to the Atlantic side. And I stand in the Atlantic, and I don't praise the Atlantic. I praise God. I see my children being born, and I'm amazed that my wife went through that process. And I'm glad I didn't faint. I like them old days when men wasn't expected to be in the room. That's nasty. <laughs> and I don't praise my wife. And I don't praise me for being potent. I praise God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And when the Muslim says this is what God is like and the scripture says God is different, I know that's not God. I'm not worshiping him. And when the Jehovah Witness and the Mormon says this is what God is like and the scripture says different, I know that's not God and I'm not worshiping him. So there's a lot to learn in the scripture. But I think first impressions matter. And this is God's first impression to his people. Have no other gods before me and don't make idols. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, 
I invite you to the best gift ever prepared for anybody. The forgiveness of your sins. Well, you don't know me. How you know I'm a sinner? Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin is death. But the gift of God, the free gift of God, I support brand development. The redeeming grace of God is that he sent his son as a sacrifice on the cross to die for the sins of God's people. And so if you're here today and you know that you're a sinner and you need to, for the first time, say, I need to trust Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, when I finish praying, the pastor will tell you how you can respond to that. And this is a great time for you to be here because if you need the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you understand for this sermon, he's not just an add-on to your life. He's the center and the anchor of your life and everything else will spin out from there. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for these dear, dear saints that are gathered. I pray that you would lock their hearts in fidelity to you as you locked Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And I pray whether it is the trial of the lion's den or the fiery furnace, they would be found faithful to you. And I pray, Lord, when it is so clear that if they would just do this thing instead of this thing, that everything would be all right with the surrounding people. I prayed it like Daniel, Lord, they will remain faithful to you. Bless this pastor to be bold and faithful with the word of God in a challenging time. Bless the members of this congregation to be committed to God in a culture that is much like Rome and Babylon with false gods and idols, bless this congregation to be committed to the true and the living God and the declaration of the good news about his son. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.